We are beginning a brand new series today called The Jesus People. Can't wait to get into this entire series. Today's message is about how Jesus people are empowered. Before we get into the message, though, let me just take a moment to say I am so grateful for all of you who are a regular part of our online community. Uh, You are an essential part of this church. Uh, The gifts that you make from week to week as you give online and invest in the work that God is doing in this community, it's making a real difference. So thank you for that. Thank you for how you support the church. Thank you that you are a faithful attender online. Tell your friends about it. And one of the best ways to tell them is to share a message like this on your timeline, like it, comment on it. Anything that drives it up in the stats will help more people see it so that lives can be changed. As we get started, would you pray with me now? Father, we are incredibly grateful for who you are, for what you've been doing and how you're leading us. I pray that in this message today, that we would just be so in tune with you, that you would have the freedom to speak into us, and that, God, we would leave this time together different, changed, somehow more like Jesus than we were when we started. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You know, the 60s marked a very turbulent time in our country. Uh, Protests against the Vietnam War were reaching a fever pitch. Uh, The successes of the Civil Rights Movement were threatened by the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The sexual revolution and the proliferation of psychedelic drugs gave rise to an emerging counterculture that rejected everything they viewed as mainstream America. But in spite of all this social upheaval, a revival broke out in that countercultural movement that it would eventually have a profound effect on much of American Protestant churches. It was called the Jesus People Movement. They became so huge, they were actually featured on the covers of magazines like Time and Life. The Jesus People were a generation of disenfranchised youth who'd had enough of the institutional church. What they did in those days helped to shape what evangelicalism eventually became. Like for one, in the 60s, mainstream Christianity had dismissed rock and roll as the devil's music. But the Jesus people reclaimed rock music and began using it as a powerful tool for both worship and evangelism. The music that they introduced to Christianity became the foundation of what is known today as contemporary Christian music. Something else the Jesus people did that forever changed Christianity was how they shared the gospel. You see, they wanted to share the good news with others, especially those who seemed to have lost their way and were experimenting with drugs and sex and Eastern religions. So they took the gospel into those places where those people were instead of demanding that outsiders come to church. It was really a return to the way Jesus taught us to do evangelism out there in the real world where people are hurting, not from the safety of our Christian enclaves. But probably the one thing that the Jesus people were best known for was their craving for the supernatural. They hungered for something more. They they wanted to experience something real. They, They hungered for a true connection to God. Honestly, are things all that different today? I mean, we're seeing a resurgence of drugs and psychedelics on a scale, frankly, I thought we'd never see again mainly because in the 60s drug and sex culture, that's also where we learned about the power of addiction and sexually transmitted diseases. Another way we're seeing a resurgence of the 60s is the huge dropout rate among young people when it comes to the institutional church. But even in a culture like what we're living in today that seems to have lost its way, 
people still crave the supernatural because God placed a hunger inside every individual for himself. And you can find evidence for it in tons of TV shows and movies and documentaries that explore mysticism and and psychics and paranormal activity. In fact, even though the world is becoming less and less religious, the case could be made that people are becoming increasingly spiritual. So if people crave the supernatural, and if shows depicting the supernatural are being consumed at a fantastic rate, then why aren't churches flourishing instead of floundering? A few years ago, David Kinneman did some of the most exhaustive research ever on non-churchgoers, and I think this one finding speaks to the issue best. He wrote, surprisingly, the Christian faith today is perceived as disconnected from the supernatural world, a dimension that the vast majority of outsiders believe can be accessed and influenced. I mean, it's true. The vast majority of those outside the church believe in the supernatural world and believe you can make contact with it. But when they come to church, they experience a complete absence of the supernatural. Friends, this is a place where people should be able to connect with God and see evidence of his presence among us. Of all places, among us is where the realness of God should be best understood and experienced. Jim Cimbala said it like this, we need something with a mark of heaven upon it. Too much of our religious life is made up of programs and human ideas and talents and strategies. While these have value, they pitifully fail to meet the need of the hour. What is missing today is something from heaven itself, something from God, the Holy Spirit that fills and floods our lives. So in today's message, I want to talk to you about the power of the supernatural, and in particular, what it means to be empowered by God's Spirit. But I want to begin by describing what God has been doing for all time, and it's best summarized in this first point, desiring to be close to us. You could say that the story of the Bible is the story of God moving nearer and nearer to his people. In the beginning, God created humans to live in perfect harmony with him. The Bible says God walked with the first couple in the Garden of Eden. He lived among us. But when humankind rebelled, we broke that fellowship and we were banished from the Garden. But as the story progresses, God seeks once again to bridge the gap between humanity and himself. This time, he did it by having people set up a temporary shelter called a tabernacle so that he could once again dwell in the midst of his people. Then later, after living in the promised land for some time, Solomon built a more permanent dwelling place for God, the temple, at the very center, the heart of the nation. Yet despite the temple being erected and God filling it daily with his presence, the people once again rebelled against God. So God's spirit left the temple. God's people were removed from his presence by being removed from their promised land, and they were carried off into Babylonian captivity. Eventually, God brought his people back to the promised land, but his spirit never returned to dwell among them in the temple. That is, until Jesus was born. When Jesus was born, he's called Emmanuel. Emmanuel is the name we call Jesus, which literally means God with us. So God returned once again to live among his people, But this time, not in a building made with hands, not in the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could visit once a year, but in filth, in in a barn, among liars and lowlifes, Jesus was born in a manger. And what did we do to God when he lived among us as a human being? We rejected him and betrayed him. We nailed him to a cross to do away with him. And what happened after that? Well, he rose from the dead to complete the plan he'd had in mind 
all along. Through Christ's death and resurrection, God can now finally and fully live among his people. How? By living in you and me. This is the ultimate plan that fulfills God's desire to dwell among his people. He sets up a dwelling place in the human heart. So God goes from a garden to the tabernacle, to the temple, to Christ and to us. That's the big picture that God is painting for us in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? So you and I have become the new temple of God. He set up a permanent residence in his people through his spirit. When a person is filled with God's spirit, they're allowing God's presence to fill up their entire life, every room in their life, every closet and every junk drawer. God now lives in us. But do people see that? Which leads us to a very important question. How do you recognize the presence of God in others? What are the true signs of the Spirit's presence as opposed to the masquerade that's often passed off as Spirit-filling today? So let's shift gears and let's talk about discerning the Spirit's presence. How do we recognize the supernatural? How do we know what is of God and what is not? Are there signs or indicators that God's Spirit is among us? There is. And I want to show them to you based on what Scripture tells us. And the first is the difference between being Spirit-centered versus being Jesus-centered. Some of the most beautiful thoughts I've ever read about the Holy Spirit were written by a man named Dale Bruner. In his book, The Holy Spirit, the shy member of the Trinity, he wrote this. One of the most surprising discoveries in my own study of the doctrine and experience of the Spirit in the New Testament is what I call the shyness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is shy. Now, maybe that's something you've never thought about before, but it really is a good analogy. If someone is shy, do they put themselves out there at social events? No. If they're shy, do they like being the center of attention? Never. Instead, shy people tend to want to blend into the background. You barely notice them because they don't really like or want to stand out. Did you know, based on what Jesus taught us, that's the perfect description of the Holy Spirit? Listen to what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will bring to your remembrance all that I have said. So the Spirit's function, according to Jesus, is to cause his disciples to remember what Jesus himself said. In other words, he keeps the focus on the teaching of Christ. Or how about this verse? When the counselor comes, he will bear witness to me. Again, this is Jesus speaking. He says, the Holy Spirit will point you to me. How about this verse? When the spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. Repeatedly, Jesus is telling us there's nothing in the Holy Spirit that makes him want to call attention to himself because he's shy. He's all about turning the spotlight on Jesus. He does nothing to make himself stand out. Once again, listen to Dale Bruner. The Spirit withdraws from sight and points to Jesus saying, notice him, listen to him, pay attention to him, fall in love with him, be preoccupied with him. That's the shyness of the Spirit. He never seeks to be the center of attention. Instead, he keeps the people of God, he keeps you and me centered on Jesus Christ. Look at this verse in John 16. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. This is why the theologian James Packer wrote this. Think of it this way. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, 
throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is, is never look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him and see his glory, listen to him and hear his word, go to him and have life, get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. The spirit, we might say, is the matchmaker, the celestial marriage broker whose role is to bring us and Christ together and ensure that we stay together. That's the ministry of the spirit. It's not to draw attention to himself, but to keep drawing us back to Jesus. So in light of what Jesus taught us about the Holy Spirit, one of the surest signs of the Spirit's presence in a movement is that Jesus Christ is the center of attention, because it's not in the Spirit's nature to lift himself up or exalt himself in any way. That's why we should be very wary of churches that talk more about the Holy Spirit than they do about Jesus Christ. That's completely incongruent with what Jesus taught us about how the Spirit operates. If you're in a church like that, don't walk away, run. You know, from time to time over the years, I've been asked the question, is your church Spirit-filled? And I always tell people the truth. I say, absolutely, because I say this is a place where Jesus Christ is central to all we do, and the Holy Spirit keeps the spotlight on Jesus at Spring Creek. Now, in case you're wondering, that's never what they mean. That question is really code for, do you have a particular worship style, or does your church encourage speaking in tongues in every worship service? Folks, you're always on dangerous ground when you equate the manifestations of the Holy Spirit with the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's work, His job, is getting people focused on Jesus Christ. A Spirit-filled church is a Jesus-centered church, or else it's not a Spirit-filled church. Here's another discernment principle when it comes to recognizing the Holy Spirit's presence, and it all comes down to the difference between being gift-centered versus fruit-centered. So how do you know when the Holy Spirit is in a person's life? Because there's evidence of His presence. And what's the best evidence of the Spirit's presence? Well, the Bible tells us explicitly. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the word fruit means. Evidence. Proof of the Spirit's presence is found in the character qualities that he produces in the one that he fills. Now listen to this brilliant observation by the theologian R.C. Sproul. It's no accident that the fruit of the Spirit is not elevated in our ranks as the highest test of righteousness. The fruit test is too high. We cannot attain it. So we prefer to elevate some lesser test. Well, what's he saying? He's saying that Christian people today don't like to be told that the best evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence is a changed character. That's a high standard. So they tried to substitute a lesser test. And what is the lesser test? Spiritual gifts. Now, it's not hard to figure out why people do this, because anybody can have a spiritual gift. Even the most worldly believer out there has a gift. The Corinthian church in the New Testament is literally one of the most messed up churches that's ever existed, but even they were said to have excelled in spiritual gifts. Having a spiritual gift is not evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Manifesting a change in character is. Now, you need to hear me saying this. Nowhere in the Bible are spiritual gifts depicted as a measuring tool. Why? 
because God gives gifts to every believer, which means there's no merit in having a gift. I'll say again, the most powerful evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence is a change in character, a growth in inexplicable love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you want to know if the Holy Spirit is filling someone, look for fruit. Look for a change of character. Their gifts are inconsequential when it comes to determining who is or who isn't filled with the Spirit. So just because you have a spiritual gift, even a sensational one, is no indicator that you have a close walk with God. Your spiritual gift is a grace gift. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's a gift freely given regardless of merit. And since they are gifts, we don't get to select them. Like the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, God's Spirit distributes these gifts to everyone as He wills. In other words, as He wills. So the Holy Spirit chooses what gift you get. That's why bragging about your spiritual gift is totally inappropriate. You got nothing to brag about. Your gift wasn't some kind of reward for your service or goodness. The spiritual gifts are not merit badges. Some traditions will tell you that if you come forward and I'm an anointed preacher, I can kind of whack you on the noggin and you'll speak in tongues as if I could give that gift away like I'm handing out coupons. But it doesn't work that way because I don't give the gifts. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts. You can't pick your gift. God gives you the gift that he wants you to have. Now, let me give you another reason why the emphasis in scripture is on character, not gifting. Listen to this. Your gifting can take you farther than your character has gone. Now, I've been a pastor for a long time, and I've known some incredibly gifted leaders who are no longer in the ministry today, and it's largely because their gifting eclipsed their character. In other words, their gifting outpaced their character, and eventually they destroyed all the progress they thought they'd made. Here's a perfect illustration of that truth. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, now this is Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, when we see people speaking a prophetic word or a leader exercising a demon or, or doing something miraculous, we think, well, of course, that person is a man or woman of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Only God could do that sort of thing. But Jesus says, not so fast. Not even the ability to do miracles equates with having a great relationship with God. It just doesn't. Human beings are fascinated by the manifestations of the supernatural. Always have been, always will be. But sign seekers are consistently condemned in both Old and New Testaments. And when we're just like them, we become enamored with the gifting while overlooking an obvious lack of character. Jesus said this about to those miracle workers, I never knew you. So even miracles aren't a litmus test for spiritual maturity. It's character, and it's always been character, and anybody who says otherwise is a liar. But there's another test I've got to mention out of control versus self-control. The most extensive teaching we have on the spiritual gifts is found in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. In particular, a lot of what Paul writes about in these chapters is to address false teaching in the Corinthian church. So get this, there were false teachers in Corinth who were blending elements of their pagan past with their present day Christianity. This is why you need to understand paganism in the first century. There are a couple of words we still use today that have their roots in paganism. One is the word ecstasy, which means to stand outside oneself. 
So in ancient mysticism, the idea was if you really wanted to experience God, it had to be outside your conscious self that of the rational mind, that the rational mind had nothing to do with God, that it was only in an altered state, a state of ecstasy, that you could truly make contact with the divine. Now, the other word that we use commonly that has its roots in paganism is enthusiasm, which means to be in God, in theos. It refers to a high state of mental excitement. It means to be out of control because it was believed that the more out of control you were, the more in God you were. That's what enthusiasm originally meant. It too has its roots in paganism. So here's what was going on. These false teachers put a major emphasis on the more sensational gifts of the spirit. And they taught, like in pagan mysticism, that the more under the influence of the spirit you were, the more out of control you were. In other words, you just couldn't help but do whatever you did or say whatever you said because the spirit had taken control or possession of you. This is the reason why Paul tells them that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets and that God is a God of order, not of chaos. Because when you're out of control, you're not under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you a quick example of someone whose name you will recognize, Plato. For all his mental acumen, here's what Plato believed about religious experience. He once wrote, it is through mania, that is ecstasy due to divine possession, that the greatest blessings come to us. So Plato divorced his rational mind from his religious experience. This originates in a belief that gods are otherworldly. So I have to be in an altered state of consciousness to make contact with them. By the way, this is not an isolated statement of Plato. He also wrote this, no one in possession of his rational mind has reached divine and true exaltation. In other words, you can't get in touch with God unless you get out of your head, out of your rational processes. So get this, even though Plato believed in rationality, he dismissed the notion that God was rational. So the more irrational the approach, the more in God you were. By the way, this is still a fairly common characteristic in most pagan religions, the belief that to be in contact with God, I need to be in an altered state. Now, that might be self-induced, or it might be drug-induced, like using peyote in Native American spirituality, or ayahuasca, like in the tribes of uh, the Amazon. In other words, the more out of control I am, the more in God I am. That's paganism, but that's not Christianity. The Corinthians were teaching that, that that's what happened when you were in the spirit. You'd have to be in this state of ecstasy. By the way, this is also why Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you used to be carried away. He's describing their pagan past, being carried away in a state of ecstasy and euphoria. But Paul objects to this idea and reminds the Corinthians, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. The believers at Corinth were so into their own personal experience that it didn't matter that what they were doing was disruptive and even driving other people away. They would just say, when the Spirit comes over me, I can't help but do what I do or say what I say. That's utter nonsense. Paul reminds them that even a message in tongues should never be shared unless there's someone there to interpret it. You have control over your gifts. Michael Green made this observation in his book, I Believe in the Holy Spirit. To suppose that the more a man loses self-possession, the more inspired by God he must be is to deny God's place in the rational. Great point. But here's the worst part. 
Because the Corinthians believed in the experience of ecstasy and enthusiasm, that someone in a wild frenzy would get up and they would say things that were untrue about God, and the people would believe them. They'd say, oh, this must be a message from God because look, they're under the control of the Spirit right now. This is where most bad teaching comes from. We elevate an experience above the content of the message. That's a very dangerous way of thinking. Now listen to Paul rebuke this thinking. He said, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you elevate a subjective experience above an objective truth, you'll end up believing all sorts of crazy things. God is a God of rationality. God's truth is objective truth. When the Holy Spirit fills you, you are still in control of what you do and what you say, and you will never say anything under the Spirit's influence that conflicts with the revealed Word of God. These are the guardrails that Paul is putting into place in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Now, here's one more discernment principle that we really need to understand, and that's the difference between bravado versus power. Bravado, as is defined by the dictionary, means a bold manner or a show of boldness intended to impress or intimidate. Friends, there are so many wounded people in the world who think that loudness equals power, largely because that's what they experienced as children growing up, when the big people in their life often raised their voice or yelled at them to get their compliance. So now they've come to equate power with volume. It's important to remember that being the loudest doesn't make you right. Decibels don't determine correctness. Instead, what we know is empty cans often make the most noise. People who make a lot of noise do so because they're full of nothing but themselves. So why do we equate volume with power when the opposite is actually true? Now, here's a classic story about this very thing. It's a longer story, but let me read it to you. Miriam and Aaron began to talk about against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Then the Lord came down and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord when... When, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. So Moses cried out to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her. So let me explain what's going on here. The basic gist of this story is that Aaron and Moses' sister Miriam get their nose out of joint over Moses' interracial marriage. Moses had married a Cushite, which most scholars believe is modern-day Ethiopia, so she was most likely a black woman. But regardless of whether she's black or not, there's no debate that Moses' wife is another ethnicity different from Moses. And what Miriam does is use her racial bigotry as a smokescreen to attack Moses' leadership. So she starts making a lot of noise about Moses and trying to stir up opposition to him. That's the story. Now, what's... A 
amazing, it's what's always been amazing to me about this story, is how Moses doesn't react to the accusations uh, or any of her troublemaking. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't call her out. He, he doesn't say you're, you're totally insubordinate. He doesn't yell at her, power up on her, try to intimidate her, even though we equate that with being strong, that you stand your ground, you call people out. Moses doesn't do any of that because Moses is meek. And meek people choose their response to life. They're not reactors. You see, in life, you're going to be one of two things. You're going to be an actor or a reactor. When people say things like, you make me so mad, or you make me so miserable, or you make me so sick, those are the reactors in life. What they're telling you is other people push their buttons and control their moods. They don't have the power to choose their response. They just react. But ask yourself this question. Is that true strength? Is the person who flies off the handle, yells, lets people have it, is that the strong one? Or is the strong one the person who remains calm and assured? The Bible teaches that meekness is having the power to not react to life situations. That's literally what meekness means, strength under control. A meek person controls the situation because they're not controlled by it. A meek person doesn't take everything personally because they've got no insecurities causing them to misinterpret everything that happens to them. Meekness is power completely surrendered to God and his agenda for the situation. So you and I have to decide who you're going to let handle your defense. Are you going to do it yourself or are you going to let God do it? Well, God does come down and he deals with Miriam's rebellion. He tells Miriam and Aaron to go meet him outside the tent of the meeting. A pillar of cloud envelops both Aaron and Miriam, and when it recedes, Miriam is covered with leprosy. It's almost like God is saying, you like white skin so much? I'm going to let you have a lot of it. So God turned Miriam's skin white with leprosy. At this point, Moses does something only a powerful person could do. Look at his response. So Moses cries out to the Lord, oh God, please heal her. The instant that God struck Miriam with leprosy, Moses doesn't grin with satisfaction. He prays for her healing. It's very telling that the first words out of Moses' mouth in this situation are praying for the person who hurt him. So Moses didn't fight back. He didn't answer his critics. He didn't get angry, didn't seek revenge, didn't try to argue or explain any of his actions. He doesn't complain about his unfair treatment. Instead, he keeps silent and he lets the Lord take up his cause. He only opened his mouth to pray for Miriam. Friends, that's true strength. Bravado is just a weak person's imitation of strength. The truly strong are meek. Now, you may ask, what does any of that have to do with the Holy Spirit? Well, remember those character qualities I talked to you about, you early, talked to you about earlier in the message? The fruit of the Spirit? Listen to them again. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what spirit-filled people are like. And notice how it doesn't say the fruit of the spirit is bravado, tough talk, being full of bluster, intimidating. It reminds me of something Dr. Charles Stanley wrote about. He perfectly summarized it in his book, The Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life. He wrote, the closer you get to believers who are truly walking in the spirit, the better they look. There's nothing plastic about them. You don't get the impression that they're hiding something. They radiate integrity. You get the impression that you could trust them with your most intimate secret. You may even find yourself opening up to them in a way that's uncharacteristic for you. 
Intimidation is, is not their game. They don't rely on personality and trumped up enthusiasm to win you over. They seem to be at peace with who they are. They are the people you find yourself wanting to be like. You know, when we feel small, we engage in verbal bluster and name calling. Believers don't have to do that. And it's not because we're weak, it's because we're strong. It takes strength to meet hate with love. It takes strength to not retaliate. It takes strength to resist the world's way of doing battle in order to engage in battle God's way. Only the Spirit-filled fight the way God fights. The world knows nothing of the Spirit's way. In a world that's hungry for the supernatural, let me tell you something more impressive than miracles. And that's a person who can respond to life's injustices like Jesus did. So when we equate bravado, tough talk, with Spirit-filling, guess what? Tough talk comes out of empty hearts, not full of God. People in the world see that all the time in the abusive, the toxic, and most all of our political leaders these days. Intimidation and being full of bluster is a sign of a person too full of themselves to let God fill them. People want to see God, and they only see God in the meek. So let me wrap up with this, displaying the Spirit's power. In the book of Acts, the church was facing a mini-crisis right up front. There were some widows who were being neglected and not cared for in the daily distribution of food. They needed someone to take on this responsibility. Here's how the Bible describes it. During this time, as the disciples were increasing in numbers by leaps and bounds, hard feelings developed among the Greek-speaking believers, Hellenists, toward the Hebrew-speaking believers because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. So the twelve called a meeting of the disciples. They said, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be right for us to abandon our responsibilities for preaching and teaching the Word of God to help with the care of the poor. So, friends, choose seven men from among you whom everyone trusts, men full of the Holy Spirit and good sense, and will assign them this task. Now, the book of Acts shows us what spirit-filled leadership is really like. And in this passage, it didn't matter whether they were preaching a sermon or serving tables, the first and most important requirement for service to God is being spirit-filled. To do the work of God, spirit-filling is absolutely indispensable. Now, one of the spirit-filled men that was chosen for this task, this task of caring for the widows, was a man named Stephen. He de he's described in this way, brimming with God's grace and energy, doing wonderful things among the people, unmistakable signs that God was with him. Now, there's no question Stephen was spirit-filled. And where you see it best is his character. In Acts chapters 6 and 7, where we read his story, we discover several things that characterize the spirit-filled life. The first one is this. A spirit-filled Christian does whatever needs to be done. The most important quality the apostles were looking for and those who would wait on tables and care for the widows was being spirit-filled. Because the spirit-filled are the only ones not so full of themselves that they would think waiting on tables was beneath them. Only the Spirit-filled will do God's work God's way to achieve God's results. Second quality, a Spirit-filled Christian reacts gracefully under provocation. So in Acts 6, 9-14, it tells us that a group of religious people hatched an evil plot to get rid of Stephen, even going so far as to engage in false witnesses bringing false testimony against him. Has anything like this ever happened to you? Have, have people said unkind or untrue things about you? Maybe even worked up a coalition of people aligned against you? Stephen encountered all of that and then some. So how did he react under this fierce provocation? How does a person react who's full of the Spirit? Listen to the Bible describe it. 
All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen isn't red in the face, biting his tongue. Instead, he sat there calmly, and even his enemies could actually see the presence of God on his face. That's a pretty amazing statement in and of itself. Third character quality, a spirit-filled Christian is mighty in the word. In Acts chapter 7, it's clear. Stephen knew the scriptures, he believed the scriptures, he lived them, and he saw Jesus in every story because that's what the Spirit does, doesn't he? He focuses our attention on Jesus Christ and his message. The fourth quality, a Spirit-filled Christian is like Jesus. Listen to this from Acts 7.55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are about 16 references in Scripture that describe Jesus as being seated at the right hand of God, which, in case you didn't know, indicates a position of power and authority. But Stephen sees Jesus standing at God's right hand. What's the significance of this? Simply put, there's only two reasons why royalty stands in the presence of others, anger or honor. In this case, it's likely both anger at what's about to be done to Stephen, but honor for his servant who stood up for him. Jesus stands for those who make a stand for him. So the religious leaders refuse to listen to another word that Stephen had to say. They drag him out of the city to kill him by stoning. And here's how the Bible describes that scene. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Even in his death, Stephen is just like Jesus, not wishing for payback, retribution, or judgment or for the evil that's been done to him, but asking instead for forgiveness for his persecutors, for the release that comes from knowing Jesus. So when the Bible says Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, what it's showing us is a man so emptied of himself that the Holy Spirit fills him completely. When the Spirit fills you, people see Jesus. Now, let me confess something right now before we wrap up. I grew up in a church where preachers got red in the face as they yelled and they tore into sinners as they preached. I grew up in a church where if you were called on to pray, you talked to God, but not in your normal voice. You had to raise your voice as if God were deaf and then take on a rapid cadence in your praying to let everyone know how intent you were in getting an answer. It was mimicry patterning my spiritual life on the examples of others rather than allowing God to shape my spiritual expressions. And I never doubted any of that until I met a truly spirit-filled person. My spiritual director, Carolyn Atkins, that I've known and seen up close for 30 years now, is a woman who truly walks with God every single day of her life. When she prays, she doesn't shift into some sort of spiritual prayer voice. She just talks to God like she's talking to her best friend because that's what she's doing. Carolyn has said some of the most convicting things to me that anybody has ever said, but never has she uttered them in an angry way or a way that's intended to shame me. Every time she spoke, she spoke with clarity and conviction about an issue in my life. I knew she cared deeply about my soul and spoke only out of a desire to see me experience God's best. 
I see the spirit filling in her by how perceptive she is with me and even others in the group. She sees often beyond the surface issues where I tend to get bogged down. And with radical clarity, she calls out the real issue that I happen to be facing in the moment. Being around a genuinely spirit-filled person makes me open up. Trust her with my deepest, darkest secrets. Makes me see Jesus more clearly. and makes me want to be more like her. So if you see anything of Jesus in me today, it's largely because of how I've seen Jesus in her. Let me tell you something from the heart. Our world is hungry to experience God. People crave the supernatural. They long for meaningful connection to God. It's tempting to think that what people need to see are more spectacular signs. But I'm telling you, what people need to see is more truly changed lives. The kind of life change that happens when God's Spirit truly fills someone. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you for this time that we've had together as we open up this series and we begin to explore more and more about what this life in you actually looks like. God, I'm thankful for the example of the Jesus people. Then in the midst of a culture that was losing its way, you brought a revival and you revived young people, and they brought a refreshing to the church that we desperately needed. And more than anything, they wanted to know you, to connect with you, and they believed that Jesus truly was the answer to life's most pressing issues, questions, and stresses. God, I believe that too. And people are hungry for the supernatural and what they want to see because they don't see this anywhere else. What they want to see is a character that's truly changed. A character that doesn't act like so many who are toxic and broken and, 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 and use power and intimidation to get their way. They want to see people who truly respond like Jesus. And that only happens when your spirit is filling us. The, the, the fruit of the spirit, they're not goals for us. The fruit of the spirit are the things you're producing when we're full of you and not full of ourselves. So God, I pray that you would create an emptying of me and of us, that God, we would be emptied of ourselves, so that we could be filled with you. And that God, you would do the work of transforming our temperament, our character, and make us the kind of people who hunger after love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and forgiveness. I pray, God, that we would manifest the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the life of God in us. You came, God, to live in us. Ultimately, your plan was to be close to us, to be as close as our very breath, and you achieved that through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You achieved a way for us to know you, to be in relationship with you, to have you at the center of our life. If there's anyone listening to me right now who doesn't know you in a personal relationship, help them to pray this simple prayer right now. God, I want you in my life. I don't understand it all. But somehow, I believe that Jesus, when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, he not only paid my penalty, but he made it possible for me to know you at the very core of my being. 
And so, God, I invite you into that place of my life, my place of brokenness, my place of sin, my place of selfishness. I pray that, God, you would forgive that, that, God, you would cleanse me, make me into a new person, do in through and for me what I cannot do for myself. God, I pray that for someone, that they would pray that kind of prayer, that they would trust you in that way, that they would lean into Jesus and find that Jesus is all for them. And I pray, God, for us as your family, as your people, that we we would be the kind of people who daily want to live as close as we can to you. That, God, we would allow you to do the transformation in our character that needs to happen so that we no longer look like the world and react like the world, but instead we look and we act like Jesus. I pray all of this in your name. Amen. God bless you. I am grateful that you would join us today. I pray that this is going to be a very blessed week. Join us again next week as we continue this series about what it means to be filled.